Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, and follow with me as we hear our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, speak to us about his coming again. You probably know that the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned upwards of 300 times in the New Testament and many other times throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The coming again of Jesus Christ is a truth that we are to take with the utmost seriousness. In the previous chapter and in the previous uh, first half of this chapter, Jesus has been impressing on his disciples not only the fact of his coming again, but the great need that they have to be ready for that coming at such a time as you think not. The Son of Man comes unexpectedly. We may have different views on prophecy. Maybe you're a historic premillennialist, a dispensational premillennialist, or an amillennialist, or a postmillennialist, and you're thinking, what on earth are those? Well, maybe you're a realist, an idealist, a preterist, or a historicist. These are all different categories that people use to explain the mechanics, if you like, of the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying they're not helpful in their own way. But the danger is we can be so caught up with the mechanics of his coming that we lose sight of the reality of his coming and are ready and prepared for his coming. And so I want simply to walk with you through this discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ where he brings his teaching on his coming again to a conclusion. And it's a very dramatic conclusion. And I want to notice a number of things with you as we walk our way through these verses. First of all, he tells us that when he comes again, he will come in glory. Not in humility, but in glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He is presenting the glory of his coming again to his disciples in dramatic language. They looked at him and saw the ordinariness of his appearance. People passed him by. Indeed, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing spectacular about the humanity of Jesus Christ. There was no halo around his head to say, look who I am. He took our frail flesh to himself. 
was born into this world in virtual obscurity. There were little testimonies to the wonder of his person when, for example, these strangers from the east appeared and they bow down and worship him. That was an astonishing thing. How did these men from the east, we are told, how could they see past the ordinariness to the profound unusualness of this infant that lay before them. They bowed down and they worshipped, but through his life, people would say things like this, isn't he the carpenter's son? Aren't, isn't his mother and brothers and sisters with us? But when he comes again, he will come in glory. He will be seated on a glorious throne. However we are to imagine that or picture that. The Bible uses spatial language to accommodate, as John Calvin puts it, to accommodate our our inability to perceive the profundities of God's revelation. God stoops down to us. He draws pictures to us. Calvin even says God does this in the Bible. He talks baby talk to us in order that we might even begin to begin to have a little sense of the profundities, the the immensities and the infinities of what he has done and who he is. And when Jesus Christ comes again, he will come in glory. It will be a spectacular appearing. It will be visible and it will be personal. We're told in another place, every eye will see him. Now don't ask me how that could possibly be. How could every eye see him if we're here and people in Australia are in the utter extremities of the globe? How is it possible? I have no idea. Make sure you're there to behold it when it happens. Every eye will see him. He will come in the resplendent glory of the cosmic, triumphant Son of God. He will come in our flesh for he will ever be the God-man. He doesn't divest himself of our humanity by his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He will ever be the lamb in the midst of the throne. And so Jesus right at the outset says do you get it? This time of humiliation will be gone and when I come again it will be in resplendent glory that's the first thing he tells us and then secondly he tells us that when he comes again all the nations will be gathered to him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, all the nations in their disparateness 
will be gathered before him and then and only then will he make a final irrevocable division between them. You see, until the end of history, until the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers and unbelievers live cheek by jowl. We live in the same homes, the same villages, the same towns, the same nations, the same continents. We work in the same offices. But when the Lord Jesus comes again, he will make a final, irrevocable division. You see, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Only two kinds of people. Not rich and poor, not black and white. Not educated and uneducated. There are two kinds of people. Those who belong savingly to Jesus Christ and those who don't. When I went to Cambridge from New Mills in 1999, more than one person said to me, will it not be a little intimidating going to Cambridge? And I remember saying, why would it be intimidating? I'll meet the same kind of people in Cambridge as I met in a semi-depressed mill town in East Ayrshire. And they looked at me, same kind of people, yeah. They'll either need saving or sanctifying. That's the only two kinds of people there are. Whether in this place tonight, or in Inverness, or in wherever you go in this world, there are only two kinds of people. Those who have come by the grace and mercy of God to place the weight of all that they are on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and those who have not. Until that moment when Christ comes again, we, we live cheek by jowl. Sometimes with great difficulty, sometimes with great ease. But when he comes... He will make that final, irrevocable division. And the Lord Jesus uses the language that would be very familiar to his hearers. He says there are sheep and there are goats. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. None of us are born God's sheep. None of us are born into this world as God's sheep. We are all fallen in our first head, Adam. We share in Adam's sin. We share in Adam's rebellion. And then by practice, we live out Adam's rebellion in our own lives in a multitude of ways. Sometimes egregiously, sometimes with a veneer of respectability and religion and education. But we're all born into this world, if to use the Lord Jesus' language, as goats, as men and women, boys and girls, who are hostile to God, with hearts that are biased against him, against his law, against his son. And that's why the whole Bible from Genesis, really Genesis 3, 15 to the end of book of Revelation 22, 21. The whole Bible 
is about how goats can become sheep. That's the whole message of the Bible. How goats, people who are by nature children of wrath, like all of mankind, Ephesians 2, how men and women, boys and girls, who are at enmity with God, can come to be at peace with God, can become part of his sheepfold. Remember how Jesus in John 10 likens himself to the good shepherd who so loves his sheep that he's willing to lay down his life for his sheep. When Jesus speaks these words, he's actually making an evangelistic appeal. He's saying to the people, Please, please, please don't remain goats. Become sheep. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. I hope you know it. Chapter 33, verse 11. As I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather that they would turn to me and live. Oh, why will you die in your sin? Turn to me and live. These are remarkable words. God is saying, as I live, he is, he's making an asseveration about himself. I want to save you, redeem you, rescue you. One of the most moving verses, I think, in the gospel narratives is when our Lord says, is it the end of Luke 13, you would not come to me that you might have life. You would not come to me. The problem's not me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. The problem is not that I am unwilling, but that you would not come. There's only one reason why people will finally be lost. They would not come. They would not come. And so Jesus says when he comes, all the nations will be gathered to him. And he will make this final irrevocable division between them. And then thirdly, he tells us about those on his right to whom he will say, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the glorious prospect that belongs to those who have become God's sheep, his people, who have entered into the sheepfold of God through Jesus Christ, who is the door. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And Jesus says, you who are my sheep, you are blessed by my Father. Come and receive the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And then he says this, for, it's a connective particle. And you might expect Jesus now to say, for you put your trust in me alone as God's answer to your sin. Or 
because you laid hold of me, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that our good works, our kind deeds, merit us acceptance with God? Is he saying that as so long as we um, visit the poor, care for the sick, feed the hungry, that all will be well with us at the end? No, of course he's not saying that. That would run counter not just to everything Jesus says in the Gospels, but to the whole testimony of the Bible. We come to God alone through Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The believer is accepted by God solely and alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the whole message of the Bible. Abraham, Genesis 15, he was justified by faith by self-abandoning trust in God and in his promise of a redeemer. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this. Living, saving faith is not a matter of words, but of actions. Saving faith shows itself in a new lifestyle. You know Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The gospel comes to recenter our lives in God. And in doing that, it changes our dispositions, doesn't it? Some of you, hopefully, raised in the free church, not like me, will know the great sermon of Thomas Chalmers. Probably the most famous sermon preached in the 19th century in Scotland. The expulsive power of a new affection. The gospel comes to change our disposition towards God and towards other people. Remember the man who came to Jesus and says, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says the greatest commandment. Remember he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that authentic saving faith isn't empty. Christianity is not simply about orthodox profession. Please, God, it's not less than that. But it's more than that. Christianity is about becoming new creations. Changes the way we think. Changes the way we talk. 
Do you know that? The gospel comes to wash your mouth. It comes to give you a taste for what is good and godly and a distaste for what is bad and ungodly. And so Jesus is bringing the life of faith down to basic daily practicalities. And they say, but, but Lord, and th- th- this is beautiful, isn't it? This is actually beautiful. They say to the Lord, but wh- wh- when did we see you hungry and feed you? Wh- wh- when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you thirsting and give you something to drink? You see, what they have done, they have done almost without thought. They just did it. They saw need, they met it. They didn't wake up and think, wait, what good deeds can I do today? Now, that's not a bad thing. But they're surprised. They said, but, but Lord, I, I don't remember doing these things. And Jesus says, for as much as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it for me. You see, the gospel unites us not only to the Savior, it unites us to one another. We are the brothers and sisters of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful here is the, just the, the thought of these believers saying, I, I, I don't remember doing these good things. It was just part of their life. They were instinctive Christians. They saw need, they met need. They didn't turn a blind eye. They didn't cross over to the other side. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are literally starving in different parts of the world. You hear about it later tonight. In prison. Naked? Are we helping them? Are we expending the resources we have to help them? Are, are, we, are we giving generously, sacrificially? You know, people talk about tithing. Well, yeah, tithing might be, you know, a good thing, a helpful thing. The New Testament model for giving is not tithing, but sacrificial giving. Presenting all that we are to the Lord You and I don't own one thing. You don't own the shirt in your back. You don't own the house you live in. You don't own the car you drive. Everything we have is the Lord's. It is from him. And our daily prayer should be, Lord, you've given me so much. Open my eyes that I might share of my abundance with others. And then, fourthly, he says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. That is, cursed of God, execrated by God, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. For I was hungry, you gave me no food, etc. And they will say, Lord, When did we see you hungry? Now notice that they use the same language as the saved. 
They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And the unbeliever says the same language. Our language can be evangelical, reformed, confessional. And I love evangelical, reformed, confessional Christian. I'm a confessional Westminster Calvinist. Top of my head to the soles of my feet. Parrots, intelligent parrots, can recite parts of the confession. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said, people will come to me in the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we preached in your name, we cast out demons in your name, and I will say, I never knew you. The language of faith may be orthodox, But faith without works is dead, says the letter of James. You cannot be united to Jesus Christ and not be given to good works. Why? One of my favorite texts in the whole Bible is Acts 10, verse 38. Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius. And he begins to unpack the good news. And where does he begin? He says, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good. Before he gets to the cross, he tells him about Jesus. He went about doing good. I'm just thinking about uh, Pooh Bear, sometimes I sits and thinks. And sometimes I just sit. And that's my problem. Sometimes I just sit. The Lord went about doing good. He looked to do good. It was instinctive for him to do good. And Jesus says to these on his left, your lives betrayed you. You may have the profession of faith, but your life betrays you. That's why it's so vital when people inquire about becoming members of a Christian church. We, we want them to understand the faith. We want them to confess the Savior rightly and biblically and theologically and uh, in every way that's right and good. But we want to ask, does your life show that what you say with your lips is the lifestyle that marks who you are. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Martin Luther said, faith is a busy little thing. Great, isn't it? Faith is a busy little thing. And then the fifth thing, final thing Jesus says here, he tells us, that the division that he will make will be irreversible and irrevocable. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Bible has very little to say about eternal punishment. Actually, it has very little to say, you say, well, 
I can, yes, I can think of passages too. But when you look at the whole conspectus of the Bible, covering over 2,000 years, you know why it says very little? Because it's so unimaginably awful. Which is why Jesus Christ, more than anyone else, speaks about hell. Because he alone, more than any other, had the right to do so and the understanding with which to do so. What is eternal punishment? It is to be shut out from the living presence of God and to be cast into the nightmare prospect of eternal darkness. And the Bible uses images, doesn't it? It talks about eternal fire. Well, how can there be darkness if there's there's fire? Well, if you're a Glaswegian, you would say, screw the heed. Um, The Lord uses any picture he can to impress on us the unimaginable awfulness of hearing those words, depart from me, I never knew you. but the righteous into eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, it's not life that goes on and on and on and on and on. Who would want that? Who on earth would want that? This is eternal life, said Jesus, that they might know you, the only true God. Eternal life is relational. Eternal life is an endless exploration of the infinities and immensities of the triune God. And so Jesus says to his disciples, when the Son of Man comes, and he uses that designation, we close with it, he uses that designation, doesn't he? Because they would know immediately what he's thinking about. They would think, ah, Daniel chapter 7. Well, there were no chapters in the Bible in those days, were there? Chapters came to be about the 13th century and verses about the 16th century to help us navigate. Bible wasn't written in verses and chapters. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in a night vision the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The Lord is coming. You know the last verses? In the Bible, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we close our service of worship, we'll sing some.